I'm Scott Aniel, and you're listening to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Well, it has been some time that I've been able to do a standalone podcast episode, a lot of traveling this summer and uh, quite a busy schedule also this fall, just returned in August from 10 days in Brazil, and then uh, we had our G3 regional conference in Washington, D.C. last week. The previous weekend, I was preaching in Virginia, so the whole family went up, and uh, we spent some time in Virginia preaching there, Washington, D.C. for the conference, and then a couple days, and now back. Next week, we'll be in Mexico and Guadalajara, and then uh, the following week in Texas at uh, a seminary lecturing October uh, Grace Alone Conference in Colorado. So a lot of things coming up. I invite you to visit scottannual.com or my bio at g3min.org. I've got my itinerary there. And if you're anywhere near any of the places I'm going to be this fall, I would love to see you there. But our regional conference last week in Washington, D.C. was a great conference, a good time, a lot of good people there, a lot of first-time attenders to a G3 conference, which was encouraging to see. But the theme of the conference was particularly relevant, I think. Uh, The theme of the conference was the sufficiency of Scripture. And so all of the sessions were focused on that from one angle or another. Uh, My session was uh, from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, where Peter argues that the word is more sure, we find in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, literally, and we have more sure the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. And got a lot of positive feedback from the message. I made the argument that the word, the completed canon, the 66 books of the inspired word of God are more sure than even if we had direct revelation from the Lord or a personal, individual, subjective, supernatural experience from the Holy Spirit. And I pushed back in particular against the common thinking that is very common in modern evangelicalism today, that we ought to expect to hear from God. Uh, In its more extreme forms, of course, uh, there are those who teach that we ought to expect to receive prophetic revelation from the Lord. And so I addressed that a little bit. But the specific teaching that I pushed back against in particular was not the continuationist view of prophecy, but rather those cessationists who nevertheless argue that we still ought to expect to receive a still small voice, a nudge from the Holy Spirit, a peace from the Holy Spirit, that sort of language. And I would argue that no single book has done more to spread this kind of expectation among evangelical Christians, especially Baptists, than Henry Blackaby's Experiencing God. Blackaby in his book says, God still speaks to his people. If you have trouble hearing God speak, you are in trouble at the very heart of your Christian experience. And this is someone who claims to be a cessationist. Charles Stanley, Priscilla Shirer, uh, there are many today who, could, who claim to be cessationists who nevertheless teach this. Uh, again, Blackaby. 
the testimony of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is that God speaks to his people and you can anticipate that he will be speaking to you also. Charles Stanley uh, argues God loves us just as much as he loved the people of the Old and New Testament days. We need his definite and deliberate direction for our lives, as did Joshua, Moses, Jacob, or Noah. As his children, we need his counsel for effective decision-making. Since he wants us to make the right choices, he is still responsible for providing accurate data, and that comes through his speaking to us. Again, I think this is a very common language and expectation among most evangelical Christians today. The idea that God spoke regularly throughout the scriptures, this was a normal experience for most people in the Bible, and therefore why shouldn't we expect that God would speak to us today? Maybe not verbally, maybe not prophecy, we're cessationists after all, but we expect to receive a nudge from the Holy Spirit, a peace that the Holy Spirit will lay things on our hearts. You'll hear that kind of language. But I argued in my sermon at the conference that this kind of thinking reveals two significant misconceptions about supernatural experiences that are recorded for us in the Bible. And first is the fact that supernatural experiences, God speaking to his people, were very, very rare in biblical history. People assume they happened all the time, but really they only occurred mostly in three focused general periods. The, the patriarchs and Moses, the sort of establishment of Israel and the giving of the law, and then Elijah and the prophets, and then Jesus and the founding of the church during the, the first century in the apostolic age. And we have to remember that there are large spans of history between those three periods where God's speaking to his people outside of his written revelation was not the normal experience. Even in the book of Acts, the normal expectation was not direct revelation from God. The normal expectation was to trust the sufficient word. Uh, if you look at the book of Acts, direct revelation only occurs in about nine separate times over 30 years in the book of Acts. Whereas there are over 70 instances in the book of Acts where Christians, including the apostles, made decisions, significant decisions in some cases, without direct revelation. They consulted the word of God, and then they asked the Lord for wisdom, and they applied the word of God to their particular circumstance. But also the second misconception is that people misunderstand the purpose of those supernatural experiences, those Supernatural experiences, direct revelation from the Lord, did not exist for its own sake as the normal way that God revealed his will to his people. Those supernatural experiences were for the purpose of confirming the written word of God. Those three periods, Moses and the establishment of Israel, the giving of the law, Elijah and the prophets, Jesus and the apostles, all three of those periods were periods in which the word was being given. And those supernatural experiences, as well as direct revelation from the Lord, confirmed that the revelation was from God. That revelation was written down, and then once the revelation was written down, people didn't expect to hear from God directly. They trusted in the sufficient word. 
This is exactly the argument that Peter is making in 2 Peter chapter 1. The transfiguration, Peter argues, confirmed the revelation of God, the deity of Christ to his apostles. Then that revelation was written down. Peter addresses that in chapter 3, which of course became the New Testament. And so now we have the inspired Old Testament, the the inspired New Testament, and that revelation is now sufficient for us. We need not expect any additional revelation contra the continuationists who say that prophecy has continued. But neither ought we to expect the Holy Spirit to sort of nudge us or give us a peace about certain things or impress something upon our hearts, give us impressions. And this is something that is even expected among cessationists. I mentioned in my sermon at the conference that several years ago I attended a debate at the National Meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society between two continuationists, Sam Storms and Andrew Wilson, and two cessationists, Ligon Duncan and Tom Schreiner. Duncan and Schreiner disagreed with Storms and Wilson. Storms and Wilson teach that God still speaks through prophecy today. Wayne Grudeman is another significant proponent of this. John Piper they argue that God still speaks through prophecy. They, they don't hold that prophecy on the same level as Scripture. They say that prophecy has changed from, for instance, Old Testament times or even the, the period of Acts. It's a, it's a new kind of prophecy that might be fallible. So they're not, they're not false teachers. They're not heretics. They're not raising prophecy to the level of Scripture. But they say that sometimes the Holy Spirit nudges us or impresses something upon our hearts. And that is prophecy that then has to be tested by Scripture. Duncan and Schreiner disagreed with that. They argued that prophecy ceased. However, in that debate, Duncan and Schreiner nevertheless suggested that the Holy Spirit does still speak today through impressions. He leads us through nudges and through promptings. Really, it was no different than what Wilson and Storms were arguing. The only difference was in what they called it. Wilson and Storms and Grudem and Piper call it prophecy. Duncan and Schreiner, especially Schreiner, said it's not prophecy, But it is from the Holy Spirit. It's just impressions. In fact, Tom Schreiner, in his recent book, Spiritual Gifts, admits this. He says this, What most call prophecy in churches today, in my judgment, isn't the New Testament gift of prophecy. Okay, so far so good. He's saying it's not prophecy. Prophecy in scripture is, thus saith the Lord. But then Schreiner continues and he says, It is better to characterize what is happening today as sharing of impressions rather than prophecy. God may impress something on a person's heart and mind, and he may use such impressions to help others in their spiritual walk. It is a matter of definition, Schreiner says. What some people call prophecies are actually impressions where someone senses that God is leading them to speak to someone or to make some kind of statement about a situation. So you see what Schreiner is arguing. It's really just a matter of what you call it. 
he's really agreeing with Grudem, Storms, Wilson, that the Holy Spirit gives us impressions. He just doesn't want to call it prophecy. He says, let's just call it impressions. And he even admits that theologically, there's not a difference here between cessationists and continuationists. He says a couple paragraphs later in his book, Spiritual Gifts, the difference between cessationists and continuationists is in some ways insignificant at the practical level when it comes to prophecy. For what continuationists call prophecy, cessationists call impressions. As a cessationist, Schreiner says, I affirm that God may speak to his people through impressions. And there are occasions where impressions are startlingly accurate. Schreiner and others, when they argue this, Blackaby, uh, uh, Charles Stanley, they don't give scripture to defend this. They, they just say things like, we've all experienced this sort of thing. Or as Schreiner said, these impressions are startlingly accurate, so they must be from God. Or you'll often see these, these folks, this happened in the debate at ETS, they'll quote Spurgeon or Jonathan Edwards or Lloyd-Jones or others who sound like they believed in such sort of uh, impressions, and they use that as defense. But there is no biblical support for this idea that the Holy Spirit of God speaks through impressions. No, the Holy Spirit of God spoke directly to his people in three significant transitional periods in the outworking of God's plan. God's revelation was written down in his word, and that word now is sufficient. That is key. We need to acknowledge that the word of God is sufficient and trust in the word. Sinclair Ferguson's book on the Holy Spirit is very, very helpful uh, on this particular issue. Here's what Ferguson explains, what I've already stated, that this direct revelation from God is not the normal expectation, but only occurs at significant periods. Ferguson says this, In the scriptures themselves, Extraordinary gifts appear to be limited to a few brief periods in biblical history in which they serve as confirmatory signs of new revelation and its ambassadors and as a means of establishing and defending the kingdom of God in epochally significant ways. Outbreaks of the miraculous sign gifts in the Old Testament were, generally speaking, limited to those periods of redemptive history in which a new stage of covenantal revelation was reached. But these sign deeds were never normative, nor does the Old Testament suggest they should have continued unabated even throughout the redemptive historical epoch they inaugurated. Consistent with this pattern, the work of Christ and the apostles was confirmed by signs and wonders. In other words, to focus on the relatively few cases in biblical history of extraordinary works of the Holy Spirit and direct revelation from God and to draw from those a theology that assumes this to be the regular activity of the Holy Spirit or of God fails to take into account the purpose of these works in the overarching 
plan of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 say that the scriptures are sufficient to equip, equip us for every good work. We don't need impressions. We have something more sure. Scripture is sufficient for every good work. 2 Peter chapter 1 says that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through a knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And where do we get that knowledge? Later in the same chapter, Peter says, we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed in the Old Testament. And now Peter is saying, inscripturated in the New Testament. Scripture is sufficient. How do we know the will of God then? People, that's, that's why people want impressions. Well, the word of God tells us. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And all of that is leading to this purpose clause. So that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You want to know God's will for your life? Don't expect impressions. Don't expect a peace. Don't expect the Holy Spirit to lay something on your heart. If you want to know the will of God for your life, present your body as a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to this world. Renew your mind by the sufficient word. And then ask God for wisdom. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Immerse yourself in the sufficient word, and God will give you the wisdom to accurately apply the sufficient word to your particular circumstance. Now, the question is, well, what does the Holy Spirit of God then do today? That's a question that came up after my session last week. People People said they tracked with me, they, they, they tracked with the passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, but then, the, but then the natural question is, well, how does the Holy Spirit work, or is the Holy Spirit working today? And he absolutely is. But if you look at the New Testament, what you find, the dominant activity of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is particularly in the epistles, which the epistles serve as the normative expectation for us as Christians today. The dominant activity of the Holy Spirit is not supernatural experience. It's not direct revelation. And nowhere do we find this expectation of impressions or laying things on our hearts. The dominant activity of the Holy Spirit for us as believers today is sanctification. The Holy Spirit of God takes the word that he inspired and he sanctifies us by his word. Every activity of the Holy Spirit today is done through the word that he inspired. The Holy Spirit regenerates unbelieving dead hearts. But how does he do that? He does it through the inspired word. Then once a heart has been regenerated, Another way that the New Testament describes this is that the Holy Spirit illuminates our hearts. What does that mean? There's a great misconception in the doctrine of illumination today. I have an article on this on uh, g3min.org on illumination. Illumination is not 
the Holy Spirit revealing something to us from the Word of God. It's not the Holy Spirit giving us understanding, intellectual understanding of what the Bible means. No, illumination is giving spiritual understanding, meaning an unbeliever, when an unbeliever reads the Word of God, an unbeliever can put sentences together, can understand the historical grammatical meaning of a text. An unbeliever can understand what the Bible means in an intellectual sense. But an unbeliever cannot understand the spiritual things of God. An unbeliever cannot recognize the word of God to be the word of God. An unbeliever does not submit himself to the authority of the word of God. He can't. He is depraved. His mind is depraved. His spirit is depraved. An unbeliever will not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And so when the Holy Spirit regenerates a believer, he illuminates that believer's mind and heart so that when a believer reads the Word of God, all of the resistance that is present in an unbeliever has been removed. The blindness has been removed. A believer who reads the word of God recognizes the spiritual significance of the word of God. That would not happen without the Holy Spirit. So the word of God is sufficient, but only because the Holy Spirit is working through his word in the heart of a believer. We must never separate the word of God from the work of the spirit. We must never Uh, Simply assume that the word of God alone is sufficient without the spirit. The spirit is working through the word in an effectual means in the heart of a believer. But neither should we expect the Holy Spirit to work apart from his word. The Holy Spirit regenerates through his word. The Holy Spirit illumines our hearts to accept the things of the spirit of God through the word. The Holy Spirit actively convicts us of sin. As we read the word, as we hear the preaching of the word. Again, the dominant activity of the spirit in the New Testament is sanctification. He sanctifies us through his word. He comforts us through his word. Everything that the spirit does is through the word that he inspired. One of the best places to see this is in Ephesians 5.19, where Paul says, be filled by the Spirit. And what does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? Well, look at the parallel passage in Colossians 3.16. Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 are almost identical, except where Ephesians 5.19 says, be filled by the Spirit. Colossians 3.16 says, the word, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Those are equivalent concepts. To be filled by the Spirit is to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. The Spirit fills us with His Word. That is how He works. Without the Spirit's work, the Word would not be effectual for regeneration, for sanctification, for conviction, for comfort. The Holy Spirit actively works through the sufficient word that he inspired to make it effectual in our hearts. And the truth is that all of the works of the Holy Spirit, as I have been discussing, those works are supernatural experiences, but they are accomplished through the word that he inspired. 
And therefore, it is incumbent upon us as believers today to trust the sufficient word. To trust the word is to trust the spirit. To immerse ourselves in the word, to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us, is to rely on and depend on and expect the Holy Spirit to actively work in our hearts. We shouldn't expect visions or dreams. We shouldn't expect a still small voice. We shouldn't expect impressions or quote-unquote nudges from the Holy Spirit. We have something better than all of that. We have something more sure. We have the written, sufficient word of God, and that is how the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. We need to trust the word. To trust the word is to trust the Spirit of God. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy this podcast, please give it a rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at g3min.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.